10 verses. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He's gone to be with the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the man came to seek out, excuse me, for the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Amen. Would you pray with me and for me? Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A while back, a very good friend entered into hospice care. And opportunities like that present themselves with honest, pretty direct, uh, wonderful conversations. You can say things like, is there anything you really would like to get off your chest? Something that you'd like to be forgiven for that would make these days easier. Would you like to write letters to people that you love? And sometimes that's so hard for a family to do and that, that it requires somebody else to help do that. And I said, is there anyone you'd like to see that I could call and, and get here for you? And she said, well, yeah. How about calling Tom Selleck? We had a good laugh, but then I thought about it, and I said, well, she asked, I, I'll try. So I found a website where you book celebrities. It asks how much you're willing to pay. You probably don't get far saying nothing. But I did make an honest plea saying, this is a friend who has watched your career, has enjoyed you since your magnum PI days, and would love to have a signed picture if you didn't mind. I didn't hear anything. Then Craig said, you know, what about Tracy Wolf? 
This is a kid who lived just up the street from us, who went into this broadcasting career, and, and she works for ESPN now, but she did work for Dan Rather, and so she has connections. We called Tracy. Didn't have her back from her either. It was as far as I was willing to go considering that even if I had been a queen for 15 minutes this week, he wasn't going to call me back. Zacchaeus, however, was not nearly so cool. He was absolutely prepared to do anything, anything to see Jesus. And when Jesus reaches that spot in the parade, wouldn't you know, it was Zacchaeus who was seen. Jesus looks up at him, recognizes him, and says, come on down, I'm going to your house today. The response of the crowd is predictable, is it not? Wouldn't you know, there he goes, going home with a sinner, a guest in a sinner's house. Oddly enough, the name Zacchaeus means righteous. It's just pure irony that Luke uses him to describe the sort of person that we would just love to hate. Chief tax collector, meaning he's got all kinds of little tax collectors working for him, and he is wealthy. And how do you get to be wealthy in those days? But through dirty dog things. Zacchaeus is a man who, distur- who deserves our disdain, and he's short. When Jesus passed through Jericho, Zacchaeus was eager to get just a glimpse, and he does things utterly undignified for a man of his station. He runs ahead of the crowd, climbs up in a tree, then waits for Jesus. Imagine a Washington lobbyist today doing something similar in a presidential parade. You'd have them locked up for observation. But Luke has taken the opportunity with this story to return to one of his major themes, that Jesus welcomes sinners. Zacchaeus is one of a number of stories found only in Luke, in which there's a lost sheep. Ninety-nine of them can be left behind to go find that one. And we're going to sweep the house for that one lost coin. A prodigal boy? who's wasted his heritage. Oh, could we find him and bring him home? And when we do, we're going to have some kind of party. The son of a man has come to seek and save that which is lost. It is Jesus' M.O. Zacchaeus may be a sinner, but on the spot he is repentant 
and asking for Jesus to be welcome in his home. The Episcopal priest Elizabeth Keaton says this, the traditional interpretation that Zacchaeus is a sinner who converts tricks us into committing the very sin that the story condemns. Zacchaeus, now a righteous and generous man who is still wrongly scorned by his prejudiced neighbors. The crowd wants to demonize Zacchaeus when Jesus is ready to recognize him as a child of Abraham. She suggests that perhaps this story isn't as much about Zacchaeus as it is about the crowd who is absolutely willing to demonize a person it doesn't know, hasn't taken opportunity to understand, and simply makes assumptions. Why do we do that? Why do we continue to make the mistake of looking at others and thinking we know? Saint, sinner, Sinner saint, we've decided we do that. And it isn't necessarily because we've set out to be judgmental, but because we are so human. Danny Kahneman, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, used prospect theory to explain why we human beings seem to do this. He says, we want our brains to be predictable. What it tells us needs to be true. And we need our emotions in our life to be stable. So that uncertainty isn't rocking. But stability and predictability also are the things that keep us living in survival mode, believing that what we see and what we experience somehow must be truth. It's why addicts stay in their addiction and those who are abused stay within those relationships because the fear of not knowing, the instability and the change of predictability is just too much to fear. What if every sinner said, I'll never be anything but a sinner. Every lost soul said, there's nothing that can be done for me. Every lost sheep said, I must be dispensable just because I wandered off. Thanks be to God, what we think doesn't define what God thinks. Because real love stops to see us. Jesus sees Zacchaeus, and he makes certain that Zacchaeus knows it. You come right on down because I'm going to your house today. In other words, Zacchaeus is accepted on the spot. On the spot. 
Jesus makes no reference to the man's fate or the lack thereof. He never suggests that he needs to grow before he can show up on his doorstep. That Zacchaeus must repent or convert or anything at all. Many of us struggle to imagine that God could just forgive someone apart from some meaningful repentance, getting ourselves straightened away. After all, if God just forgave us, then what happens to the justice of that? Now, you've known me to meddle from time to time, and forgive me that I'm going to do it today. What if God does not care about justice like we do? That is, what if justice isn't the primary category that God decides to rule by? What if justice is more about our way of tracking each other, our way of defining where people ought to stay and know their spot, of keeping count, of keeping score, of following who's in and who's out and who's up and who's down. If this is so, if God's love regularly trumps God's justice, which, my friends, I believe that it does, because why else would Jesus need to die? Then we're operating with categories that are flawed. Jesus operates outside of predictability, outside of stability, so that it can include us. What if the whole biblical story, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, isn't primarily about who's going to get in or out of heaven, but is God's urgent and relentless, deep, abiding, tenacious desire to come home and sit at your table? What if God is a lot more like a loving parent than a vengeful ruler, a lot more interested in relationship with us than in deciding who's not measuring up. Luther's great insight into Romans, in fact, says this, the righteousness of God isn't the righteousness God expects from us and by which God judges us, but rather it's the righteous God Righteousness God gives us freely and unconditionally in Christ. So that we, whether tax collector or teacher or cleric or homemaker, can hear and believe that salvation has come to our table, to our door, through Christ. Can you believe it? Against all odds and expectations, God can just forgive you. And God can pronounce salvation apart from whether you're ready for it or not. Why? Because it's God who does it. And because it's God that determines and is desperate to be in relationship with us. So that in turn we might offer that relationship to each other. And that God's reign would be real 
and visible in this world. Because real love, my friends, sees us. No matter if Zacchaeus is a sinner, he recognizes God's claim on his life and his response is priceless. If I've done anything wrong, I'm going to give half to my poor and four times to anything I defrauded out of anyone. On Bible study on Wednesday, Beth Barter is a mathematician and she said, you do know that math doesn't work. This formula would have rendered this man penniless before he got to the bank. And that is the point. Zacchaeus is willing to surrender everything he knows and understands, withholding nothing, not his home, his table, his wealth, his position, or anything else, having recognized that Jesus sees him. He gives all he has to Jesus in return. God's love of him is so total that he must love God in the same way. Because now stripped of everything that is predictable, everything that has been stable in his life, now he is finally free to become who he was meant to be. It might hurt but it's the freedom that sets us to life and to love. Fred Craddock tells that in the Second Vatican Council, he was invited to join a group of priests who celebrated together uh, all the changes and knew that it would be so hard on a number of priests and churches to adjust and adapt to the changes. So he, as a renowned preacher, kind of joined them. And at one particular session, Hundreds and hundreds of priests gathered. He, Father uh, Gene Monahan came out on the stage barefoot. Can you imagine a priest back in the Second Vatican Council coming out barefoot? Never would have happened. He had on a t-shirt and a pair of whitewashed jeans. If that wasn't enough to make everybody pass out, then what he said next might have. He said, I want you to know I'm 54 years old. I've spent my entire life as a priest, my adult life with my back to the congregation, ministering to the altar, and now my church says, come out and be with the people. Mm. I've spent most of my life hiding among incense pots and candles, doing my work as a clergyman, and now my church says, come out and face the people and build relationship. I've spent most of my life saying the Mass in Latin, and now my church says, speak in English so the people will understand. And on he went, and on and on and on, describing all the changes. And when he came to the end of his speech, he says, as you can see, I've been stripped of almost everything I know and understand. All I have left is God. All I have left is God. Somehow Zacchaeus knows that all he has, all he needs is God. And that realization makes him determined to cast dignity aside and to climb a tree. When Jesus says, I'm coming home for dinner, 
I have no doubt that Zacchaeus would spend the rest of his life sharing that encounter as the most transformational thing that ever happened to him. And whether or not we see him as a bad guy transformed, he would begin to live out that transformation in very concrete ways. In other words, people would see the difference in him. They would witness the difference. They would see how he worked in the community differently, how his business was done with integrity, how he welcomed others who might have been outcast as himself. You see, when you're seen, you start seeing others. There was a story in my news feed this week about a baby named Giselle. She was born at 29 weeks, diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome, which means her mother took drugs during her pregnancy. She weighed less than two pounds and spent three months in a NICU unit on a ventilator before she was moved to a Franciscan children's hospital. The infant had allegedly no visitors for eight months. That is except for a nurse, the charge nurse, who after her shift every evening spent hours with her holding and cuddling and rocking and singing and reading to this child. Her name's Liz Smith. She decided that as a single woman that maybe she would try to foster this child. And so this process started. And she said initially the family is contacted and there's a reunification that's attempted. It became clear pretty quickly that they just couldn't manage it. So adoption was started. Two years after Giselle first landed in state custody, Liz Smith legally became her mother. When Smith said that the judge walked into the adoption day court hearing on October 18th of 2018, he said, when a judge walks in a room, everyone stands out of respect. But today I stand in respect for you, Liz, because you deserve the respect from this room. A birthing day is a miracle, but adopting a child from miles away is destiny. That's what brought you two together. Not predictability, not stability, nothing but love. I ask you today, would you consider surrendering your dignity? I do every time I do this. Would you surrender your self-worth, everything that you are, in order to see who Jesus is and to see Jesus looking at you? Would you consider letting everything you see that keeps life stable and predictable and let it go and let God see you and do a new thing in your life? Because that's what surrender means. You can see it in the way the world starts to get better.